This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Let's talk about the date and place. Already I mentioned that most likely the date of Peter writing is something like 63 or the spring of 64. I would hold to the spring of 64. We also have to keep in mind that Paul had written two pastoral epistles about the same time, and I'm talking about 1 Timothy and Titus. And I would say these epistles were known to Peter because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about all Paul's epistles. He says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. So we assume that Paul's epistolary literature was known to Peter. Now, I already talked about the difficulty concerning Nero. I'm not going to repeat that. Now we have to talk about the place. And we have a greeting in chapter 5, verse 13. Have a look at 5.13. She who is in Babylon chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, the name of Peter is Simon, and then Jesus said, you must have a middle name, I'll call you Peter, or in Aramaic, Cephas, which means rock. And his last name was son of John. So, Johnson. Simon P. Johnson. <laughs> and now he is saying, and Mrs. Johnson is in Babylon at the moment, and she sends you her greetings. And so does my son, Mark Johnson. Nonsense. But Peter, in these moments, being in Rome and writing a letter to the Christians in Asia Minor, is saying is much the same as a graduate of this school 
and I'll mention his name, Lee De Ho, is working as a missionary in Tunisia, in Tunis. And I'm in, in email contact with him. And he always ends his letters saying, when you respond, don't mention names. And so he writes about <clears throat> the merchant. And he writes about the school teacher who has come to know the Lord. And he writes about the physician. But no names. He indicates if you mention names, these people are endangered because of you. And now what we have to say is, she, chosen together with you, that's the church. And Babylon is another name for Rome. Why Babylon? Well, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in the year 586. And that was indelibly written in the minds of every Jew. And now Rome is the oppressor. I'm not saying that Peter had the predictive powers and say in another six years Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Romans. But I would like to say that Peter probably knew about the tension in Israel against the Romans. And the Jewish war began in the year 66, two years later. So along the horizon, you might say, Peter already could say, it's going to happen. And now in these tense political circumstances Peter uses Babylon and a Roman would read that and, okay that's way back there so the church in Rome is sending greetings and so does my spiritual son John Mark the writer of the gospel because Papias tells us that behind Mark the gospel writer, stood Peter. And you probably recall from your study of the gospel of Mark that 41 times in the gospel of Mark you read the word uthus, which means immediately straightforward. Peter, the impetuous Peter, is standing back of Mark. And everything has to go, 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 go. Typical. And then Peter is showing his hand. Okay, what else can I say? Um, tradition holds that Peter spent time in the imperial city. And there he met his martyrdom. He was crucified upside down.
When that was, we do not know. It's a guess. My own guess would be about the year 67, outside the city of Rome. Okay, the purpose for writing First Peter. The purpose really is found in 5 verse 12. 5 12. Read it with me. When, with the help of Silas Silvanus, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. As an aside, I wonder what it would be if it weren't briefly. Encouraging you, here comes, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. The letter, all five chapters, the letter is a letter of encouragement. Peter nearing the end of his life, is encouraging the saints who are suffering persecution. That is the purpose. He writes, conveys a message of hope. The word hope is a key word that occurs five times. Maybe you would like to put them down. Here they are. 1 verse 3, 13, and 21. 3 verse 5, and 15. And then, of course, throughout the epistle, you have the theme of suffering. Suffering for the Lord. You find that in 1 verse 6, now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And again you have, at the end of the epistle, a reference to suffering in 5 verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Okay. I'm now going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and I'm going to look at the exegesis with you. So turn with me to chapter 3. And I begin reading at verse 18 and read straight through to verse 22. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, 
who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Now, what I would like to say is that we most likely have a, an early Christian hymn in that particular passage. An early Christian hymn. Which reads something like this. Verse 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 22, Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. That's an early Christian hymn, and you find these hymns elsewhere too, also in Paul's pastoral epistles. I refer you to Second Timothy <coughs> chapter 2, verse 11, <coughs> 11, 12, and 13. Paul says, <coughs> Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now then, verses 19 through 21 are a commentary on that hymn. So how do we explain these words? Well, <clears throat> what we can say is, first of all, that in verse 19, which is a crucial verse, because 18 really talks about Christ's death, put to death in the body, <clears throat> but made alive by the Spirit. So we have the death and the resurrection in verse 18. And in verse 22, we have the ascension of Jesus. And on 19, as I already said, and the succeeding verses are a commentary 
an explanation. He says, through whom, that is then the Spirit, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Good. I think I told you, if not, then this is the first time I tell you, that if I would ask you, when was the ratio of unbelievers over against believers the greatest? And you say, at the time of Noah. Only eight people were left. And can you see Satan and his evil angels? I almost got them, all of them. God says, stop. Eight people you cannot touch. And now think of the spiritual activity at the time Noah entered the ark. I'm talking about the evil angel world. And if you keep that in mind, what Peter is trying to say by way of a commentary, then we should read, <coughs> he went and preached to the spirits in prison, that is the evil angel world, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Now, what we also have to do is, going back to the last word in verse 18, the word spirit. Is that a capital letter, meaning Holy Spirit? Or is this a small letter? Spirit. Now, Sunday once more, please. Would you mind looking at the NASB? That's the book for me. Okay. Do you want me to tell you whether it's a small? Yes, please. It's a, it's a small, but then in the margin it's got the capital. Oh, I see. So <laughs> they, they wavered. Okay. Any other translations? We had one more. What is yours? Uh, that doesn't say much to me now. It's the same as Sunday? Yes. Okay, so small letter. Okay. Now, is it small or is it a capital letter? And now we have to ask, does Scripture teach us anywhere that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three were involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Hebrews 1. Uh, yes, resurrection I'm talking about. Anyone? Romans 1, 3, the Father, right? Let's have a look at it. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. 
We read, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. Okay, there we have the spirit of capital letter. Now go to Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul an apostle sent not from men nor by man but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And obviously Jesus was also involved in his own resurrection. And you will have to go through scripture to look at the verb to rise from the dead. You see it, active and passive. Raised, and Jesus stood up. So yes, all three are involved. And therefore, it would be my choice to make the word spirit in First Peter 3, verse 18, with a capital S. Therefore, I read, through whom... And I'll Sunday once more, please. What is the first word, or the first two words in verse 19? In whom. In whom. And the Spirit is small s. Right? <laughs> now, in is possible. I have no uh, qualms there. But if you make it a small s for Spirit then you would say, through which? That's my marginal note. Through which? He also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, <clears throat> let's continue. He went. And now you have a Greek word, and here it is. I'll put it on the board. Peruthes and transliterated. There, Peruthes. Translated as he went. And now, if you have a Greek New Testament, uh, you didn't take it along this morning. Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Very kind. Very helpful. Now look at verse 18 and 19 and verse 22. In verse 19, you read, He went and proclaimed, preached. And in verse 22, you have that same word, Peruthe, who is at the right hand of God, who went to the right hand of God in heaven. So that's the ascension of Jesus. Good. There's more. Would Jesus proclaim 
a gospel to spirits in prison. And now you, excuse me, you open a can of worms. What gospel? Because all you read is preached. And the Greek has ekteruxen, that is proclaimed. There is no direct object for the verb to preach or to proclaim. And who are these spirits in prison? If we once more say, now, the ratio of believers and unbelievers was the greatest just before Noah entered the ark. And then we say, and the evil spirits were busy as ever. Then the word spirits refers to fallen angels. And what does Peter in chapter 2 of his second epistle, and what does Jude say about fallen angels? Let's have a look. I refer you to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sin, sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And now go with me to Jude. And Jude is virtually saying the same thing. Uh, verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now then, if that's the case, then we are not talking about Jesus proclaiming the gospel because he does not save fallen angels. He is saving Abraham's seed, spiritually speaking. Then how do you interpret? Well, I take verse 19 and verse 22 together because of that poor Ruth face. He went. And I interpret verse 22 as follows, in the light of verse 19, of course. Who has gone into heaven, Poruthais, and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers. We talked about the angel world now. In submission to Him, Proclaiming victory. Isn't that what Jesus did? When he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 19. And then when Jesus ascends, he's proclaiming victory over the evil spirits. And now I'm going ahead a moment of myself. 
because I'm going to talk about that later. But now turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'll just pick out a few verses. We read about a sign in heaven of a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. That's a picture of the church of the Old Testament era. She's in the light of the sun. She's glorious. She has authority even over the moon. She has a crown on her head with twelve stars. Twelve is the number of perfection. And she is about to give birth. And then you read about a dragon, enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. And he comes and is ready to devour the child, a male child, who will rule with who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, coming straight from Psalm 2, verse 9, which is the Messianic Psalm. This is the Messiah. And notice, and Satan fails. Here it is. And the child was snatched up by God to heaven. So Satan, I, gone, lost, defeated. Then the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. We go on to verse 13. When the dragon, Satan, saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. God protects her in the desert for a time, times, and half a time. Now, 1260 is 42 months, correct? Simple math will tell you. Are you with me? 42 months is three and a half years. In typical Hebraic fashion, time, times, there's three now, and half a time, three and a half. And God protects the church. And then it goes on, verse 15, he tries once more. From his mouth, the serpent, the dragon, Satan, spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. And the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. Now, with all due respect to the media, may I say, and I hope I'm not wrong, that not everything that is said by the media is truth. Sometimes you can scrape off the lie. And gullible people, they swallow the lie. But the lie is always instigated by Satan. And now there is a river of lies. 
and the earth swallows up that river. Because a lie will always be overtaken by the truth. The truth always comes out on top. And then once more, Satan tries to come to the church. And in verse 17 of Revelation 12, I read, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Now, who are the rest of the offspring? Here they are. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And as long as you hold on to the testimony of Jesus and you obey God's commands, Satan is powerless. Martin Luther put it very simply. He said, when you feel Satan coming, then read a portion of Scripture. Or pray. Or sing a psalm or a hymn. And Satan will scorch his wings and flee. And so the church is safe all along. Okay, back to First Peter chapter 3. My interpretation, therefore, of verse 19 is, through whom the Holy Spirit also he went in ascending to heaven, proclaiming over the spirits, the evil spirits, the demons in prisons, in prison, victory. And then he has a commentary and he says, those evil demons who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah while the ark was being built and then only a few people ate and all were saved through water. And then the application, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the end of the commentary. And then he continues with the hymn, Who has gone into heaven is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now that's not all. There is more. There's more. There are other interpretations, and I'll give them to you. There are four other interpretations. I'll first mention the names and the dates and what they teach, and then I will take them one by one. Here they are. The first one is by Clement of Alexandria about the year 200. Clement of Alexandria, 200. He taught that Christ went to hell in his spirit to proclaim the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood. So when Christ died on Calvary's cross, uh, then he, excuse me for putting it this, he had time on his hands. And what did he do? He went to the prison to proclaim salvation. 
the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood. That's number one. Number two, whatever your pronunciation is, Augustine or St. Augustine, have your choice. About the year 400, said that the pre-existent Christ proclaimed salvation through Noah to the people who lived before the flood. So the pre-existent Christ was proclaiming salvation to the people who lived before the flood. <laughs> I'd like to make one observation just right now. Christ was not very successful, was he? He had only eight people to show for. No, I'm not trying to criticize the Lord. That's not my point. I'm trying to understand what Augustine is trying to say. Okay, number three. In the last half of the 16th century, the time of the Reformation, Cardinal Bellarmine, and I'll spell it for you. Here's the spelling. B, like in Bert, E-L-L-A-R-M, like in Mary, I-N-E, Bellarmine. Robert was the man's first name. He introduced a view that has been held by many Roman Catholics, and you'll immediately recognize it. Here it is. This is his view. In his spirit, Christ went to release the souls of the righteous who repented before the flood. The souls of the righteous who had been kept in limbo. And limbo, as you know, is the place between heaven and hell. And he says, that's the place where the souls of the Old Testament saints were kept. <clears throat> Typical Roman Catholic. The number four, <coughs> and this is a view promulgated by a German scholar of the 19th century. His name is Spita, and I'll spell it for you. S-P-I-T-T-A. We would say Spita, but no, <laughs> it is not Spita. The German pronunciation is Peter. Okay. He said, quote, After his death and before his resurrection, Christ preached to fallen angels. Christ preached to fallen angels. And who are these fallen angels? They are known as, quote, sons of God. 
And during Noah's time, these so-called sons of God married daughters of men. Genesis 6, verse 2. Now, what shall we say about these views? Let's take them one by one. The first one is Clement of Alexandria. He taught that Christ went to hell in his spirit to proclaim the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned since the flood. But there are serious objections. One, Scripture is silent on imprisonment of souls condemned by God. Human souls. We're not talking about spirits, angels, fallen angels. And two, Augustine's doctrine that there is no conversion after death repudiates Clement's view. To put it in different wording, at the moment of death, then irrevocably, the person either, either goes to hell, the unbeliever, or to heaven for the believer. And the one can never go from one place to the other. Impossible. All you have to do is read the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Okay, so down goes Clement of Alexandria. We move on to St. Augustine or Augustine. He said that the pre-existent Christ proclaimed salvation through Noah to the people who lived before the flood. Now, no one disputes the fact that the Spirit of Christ was active in the time between Adam's fall into sin and the birth of Jesus. The objection to Augustine's view is that he departs from the wording of 1 Peter 3.19 where you read he went and preached to the spirits in prison that's a commentary on the preceding so keep this in mind Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, made alive by the Spirit, and now you expect to follow up, and He ascended, poruthes. That's the next step. So Augustine's interpretation really does not do justice to the flow of the text. And third, Bellarmine, teaching the doctrine of limbo. But Bellarmine's interpretation has been rejected by Protestants ever since the 16th century. Because Protestants say that Scripture teaches that the Old Testament saints are in heaven. We stopped for that, remember? Yesterday, when we talked about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40, 
here it is. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Old Testament saints and the New Testament believers are together and are made perfect. And how else would you deal with, oh, so many texts. Take one, Psalm 73 which speaks about the joy of being with the Lord. And that's only one text. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job. Many others. Now, then what about Spita? He said that Christ after his death and before his resurrection preached to fallen angels who during Noah's time had married daughters of men. But this view faces a serious objection. You remember, reported for you in Matthew 22, that the Sadducees, sad you see, Sadducees, excuse me, I couldn't resist. <laughs> that the Sadducees came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, you know, there was a man who was married, no children, man dies. And then we have the Leverite custom that the man's brother has to marry the widow. And so, he married, no children, man dies. This goes on for seven times. And now, in the resurrection, Rabbi, whose wife will she be? <clears throat> now, the Sadducees did not believe in angels, did not believe in the resurrection. We read about that in Acts chapter 23 when Paul stands before the Sanhedrin. <laughs> you know, there are humoristic incidents in Scripture, and especially in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is reporting. Paul's standing there, and the high priest says, probably a young man of about 20, 25, strike him in the mouth! Even Paul had just uttered one sentence saying, I'm so happy to be here. Strike him in the mouth! Paul says, you whitewashed wall! <laughs> <laughs> then they say you're not supposed to talk well he says I didn't know he was a white priest <laughs> so this bantering goes back and forth Paul knew very well he was a high priest and then to get out of a situation he says I am a Pharisee the son of a Pharisee knowing very well that the majority party in Congress or the Sanhedrin happened to be the Pharisees and they believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees, there's not. So Paul says, I'm a son of the Pharisees. I believe in the resurrection and the hope of Israel. And there was a dispute between the two parties. And the Roman commander says, enough, Paul, let's go. And out he goes. He's off the hook. Now, what does Jesus say? Let's quickly go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Verse 23 and on, 
You read about the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And Matthew could also have said, and they don't believe in angels. And then they had that all made up story. Now go to verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Notice how he puts it in. You don't believe in angels, but they will be like the angels in heaven. He continues, But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What are you talking about? You don't know your scriptures. And that hurt because the Sadducees only took the five books of Moses and stopped. That was the extent of their Bible. So Jesus is really putting them down. Okay, with that in mind, we go to Peter's view. Angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so we have difficulty understanding how fallen angels or spirits can have sexual relations with women. Does it make sense? The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.